Thanks for listening to this episode of the Manchester Historian podcast. Make sure to be following the Manchester Historian on all of our social media. That's Twitter, Instagram and Facebook to keep up with all of our news. Hi, my name is Rebecca Bowers and I'm here with Bria Cotton, a third year PMH student at Manchester, who is going to talk to us about late 19th century Chinese and British relations. She is studying this topic as part of her dissertation and is looking to carry this on as part of her master's. Brew will set up the background for events like the Opium Wars and the Boxer Rebellion before explaining why these issues still contain emotional weight nowadays. Thank you for coming, Brea. Thanks for having me. Firstly, how did you become interested in this topic? Can you remember what inspired you to write about Sino-Western relations for your dissertation? I think I first became interested in this topic... uh mainly when I was living abroad in Singapore for two and a half years. Being kind of on the out, being outside of like the, the US at the time kind of was a good stepping stone into Asian, Asian history. And being so close to countries like China, Japan, and South Korea ma- mainly gave me some new kind of like insights and viewpoints into different perspective of, perspectives on history. I mainly became interested in this topic because at the end of first year, I was given the opportunity to go to South Korea for the summer. And within that, we kind of learned on South Korean relations with China and Japan, also looking at like how it perceived with by the West as well during like like the seventies and eighties and like the in the twentieth century. And I became interested in that because it's a topic that's not really taught or as well known as other like Western historical topics are in this country. So I was intrigued to looking looking at how like the memory of these events are remembered or not remembered in countries such as China and such as Britain. Because in China, memories of the Opium Wars, memories of the 19th century are central facets of Chinese nationalism and national identity. Whereas in Britain, we've essentially gone through the last 150 years with the national population, not even knowing these events have occurred. So I was interested in exploring why these memory gaps have developed. And it's gone to the point that I can see that museums and literature have been the central aspects in developing these memory gaps. And that if, if the state does not give you a certain narrative of its interactions with like other countries, then where do you gain that knowledge? Well, it's going to be outside of that realm in museums, in literature, in other forms of popular culture. Do you think being a PMH student and not just a history student has helped you with this and given you a different perspective on the events? Oh, most definitely. Uh, studying politics, uh, again, that's get, that gives you a different way of looking at these events. Because one thing that politics does, they look at how history is used for political means. And this is especially true in countries such as China. Uh, again, as mentioned before, Chinese nationalism is heavily built on its history. What, one of the things that Mao Zedong used like, in coming to power was that he made his rise to power seem inevitable due to the events that happened in the 19th century, saying like events such as the Opium Wars, events as the protocol, which I'll explain later on, saying that by essentially beating China down to by like these by these foreign invaders, and then to have the Communist Party rise up and take China back, it essentially made it a very nice, neat package of Chinese nationalism. So using that from a from a p- political perspective was very important. Uh, one of the units I studied this semester was War Memories of Reconciliation in East Asia with uh, Shoko Suzuki in the politics department. And that Although it mainly focused on World War II and constructing like political identities, it was central in showing to me that how a nation constructs national identity, how it uses its, its, these historical episodes are central to how it perceives others and how it kind of constructs its own idea of itself. That's not really something that's kind of come across to the West. 
we're not really seen um, using history between like us and like these Asian countries as like something that we need to be aware of. So one of the things looking at from her dissertation was how Tony Blair in his memoirs noted that he only had a vague idea of why handing over Hong Kong to the Chinese in 1907 was of significant importance to them. Whereas for China, the handover of Hong Kong was essentially the end of their of their imperial like subjugation by Britain that was lasted like 150 years. It was the end of national humiliation. And that's not something that Britain kind of came to grasp and still doesn't come to grasp with today. What were the key aspects of the international relations between Asia and the West? Particularly in the 19th century, what we had was the First and Second Opium Wars, which were essentially a culmination of like 50 years prior of really tense trading relationships between China and Britain at that point. When we, when we got to 1839 between China and Britain, what you had was two nations who were continuing to disagree with each other on these trading aspects. During the time, China had the Canton trading system in that foreign trade could only operate within a single port of Canton, whereas Britain disagreed with that system. They wanted more open ports, they wanted more freedom of movement, freedom of trade within China. So they wanted to bypass this by, do, by, by selling opium. To other, to other merchants that existed in between the realm of like Chinese merchants and British merchants. And one of the things why Britain was so in, bent really on, on opening China up was because of the lucrative trading system that they had. So Britain at this point was heavily dependent on the Chinese trade of tea into Britain. It got, it got to the point that for, for China to stop selling tea would be very detrimental to, to Britain's kind of like balance of trade issues. So, so what you had was during the system around 1839 is that you had a nation that was essentially dependent on China for its trading of goods and was losing out of these trading deals because China at this point only traded in silver. And because China did not accept British goods, they had no, no point for us, no point for any of our goods, they only relied on silver. And Britain was quickly running out of that because they depended on China for its tea and that kind of thing. So you had a very imbalanced trading system going on. So the use of opium was central in bypassing that system for their own, for their own trade, trade deals. So it gets to the point that China bans the selling of opium, the banning of trades, in order to kind of like save its citizens because it got to the point that addiction was widespread and this was something that was becoming a great concern to the Dongguan Emperor. So what? So once you get to June 1839, you have Lin Zhezhu, who's one of the viceroys, burning 20,000 opium chests. Once this burning occurs, you then have immense pressure on Parliament to essentially push Britain to send naval ships over to China to essentially, you know, pay, force China to pay reparations for the destroying of the property. Britain eventually does this. It didn't want. It didn't want to do this. Parliament was almost destroyed over the China question because no one could agree with it, agree with how to go about this. It was. It was eventually stated, we may as well go in there and reclaim reclaim our property and get these reparations. So you, you flash forward to 1842, Britain beats China due to like its superior naval, naval power. What comes out of it is the Treaty of Nanking, which is one of these most central facets of like these of these events. And the Treaty of Nanking essentially forced China to pay Britain silver indemnities on I want to say the number is like five billion U.S. dollars around around that number to Britain in order to kind of like stop the fighting. You also had Britain getting the mo getting most stable trade deals out of this. More ports were open, more money was able to flow in and out of like Britain and China during this period as a result of this treaty. 
But what also happened in the long term was that the Treaty of Nanking also set off this pattern of unequal treaties in which more and more nations, France, America, Germany, Japan, then came in this like a decade after organizing more treaties with China with their own interests at stake. And as a result of this, what developed was known as the Most Favorable Nation Clause. And that any new treaty that is developed by, by Britain, by France, by China, essentially says we are now the most favorable nation. Favorable nation. Any new trade deals we come up with now directly applies to us. And also, we also reserve the right to ne- negotiate any former treaty at whatever time, and that so long as it remains within our best interests. So this, this, get, this gets settled, but it comes up again around 18, 1858 in which Britain is now seeking to renegotiate the Treaty of Nanking because now realizing that, that, Fran- that France and the U.S. now have all these more favorable deals and Britain is starting to kind of fall behind in, the, in like these trading relations. And unfortunately, and unfortunately, this kind of reaches to a flashpoint with what's known as the Arrow Incident, in that, in that a British manned ship, which, which had a Chinese crew, but a British captain, was captured by, 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 China, by Chinese forces and searched. And this also led to like a very symbolic, in the British opinion, very kind of uh, kowtowing sense of bringing the flag and bringing it down. So again, Britain takes this as a way to force open China again, yet again. A second Opium War happens, but this time more countries get involved. France gets involved as well because they, they seek to protect their own interests as well as like threat of missionaries as well. So the most essential event of the Second, second Opium War is the burning of the Summer Palace, which happens at the end of the Second Opium War, around about October, September, 1860. During this period, when China was refusing to sign the treaties, it got to the point that British and French forces stormed the stormed the Summer Palace, which was the palace in which like, the emperor resided in previously during the war, in which he then fled once the, the war turned the tide against China. And and it was dur- during these, these chain of events that looting occurred, millions of artifacts were stolen from these areas. The palace was then burned down as well, and to essentially nothing. It was the most beautiful gardens that existed for over like 200 years, and it was like burned to the ground bodies opposing imperial forces. So once that ended, it again further so showed how China was now like the sick manifestation by having all these foreign, foreign invaders come in and destroy its properties. And those are the most central events of Opium Wars, which I'm trying to fo- which I'm essentially trying to focus on. And these all played a played a hand in further bringing down the Qing Dynasty, which was ultimately culminated by the Boxer Rebellion in 1899. So the Bo- so the Boxer Rebellion was essentially having this eight national eight national alliance come in to protect their own international settlements that ha- that were in these ports at the at these times. What you had was there was a rebellion uh, that was led by anti-imperialist, anti-Christian backing from the peasantry that were going against the Qing dynasty. They essentially said, the Qing dynasty can no longer protect our own interests, we need to take it into our own hands and expel the foreign barbarians. The Qing dynasty were to support this and says, we, c- we can use this to our own advantage. If we can have the backing of the anti- anti-imperialists, we can then ha- expel the foreign bar- barbarians at our- without having to get, get involved ourselves. This then leads to the th- threatening delegation quarters. This leads to threatening of like different foreign nationals, and as a result of this, they then the eight nation alliances use this as an excuse to go into China and essentially bring down these forces. The bringing down these forces then leads to the Boxer Protocol, which was which was signed in around 1901. This is where again they forced China to pay over 400 million silver tails, which is about modern money, about 10 million U.S. dollars. To all the different nations that participated in subduing this rebellion, 
And it's still a question to be answered as to why that amount was negotiated or why so much of it was forced onto China to in order to pay this amount of money. And it was also then these events that also led to the end of the Qing Dynasty in, in 1911. It was at this point this really cemented how inefficient the Qing was in subduing foreign oppressors. So within all these events, what, what becomes clear is just how central foreign, foreign invasions were in subduing China during this period. All of these themes of kind of like imperialism, subduing China, gaining China for its, using China for its own material means, essentially led to China becoming a, a semi-colonial state. In that, even though they were being controlled by these countries, they were still being being subjected to foreign laws for foreign interests. So that was kind of one of the main issues as to why this period is so central is because it ultimately changed the course, I, I would argue, in like in the East Asian sphere and the British, because as a result of this, you have Japan you, seeing, seeing the decline of China and using that as an excuse to, ru to rise up and modernize in, 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 its, in its own way. And you also see Britain and, and the US and France further rise the ranks in terms of imperial power. Would you like to explain the key themes and arguments of your work? Yeah, so contained within all this, what you have is a divergence in how this is remembered by these two countries. So China essentially takes these events, takes the Opium Wars, takes the Box Protocol, takes the Foreign Oppression, takes the unequal treaties that all come as a result of these altercations, and then become and then re-remembers it in like the late 20th century, like 1990s. Because what you see is the Chinese Communist Party using these events, as briefly explained earlier, to further show how inevitable the rise of the CCP was. It, was, it became known as what was termed then as at the century of national humiliation in that China failed to expel the foreign barbarians. The Qing Dynasty itself failed to kind of like rise up and go, and go against these. And this led them like to China being further subjugated and essentially being used by, by these foreign oppressors. Whereas in Britain, it quickly became uh, forgotten about. It was a sense that like it, it happened, it was one of those just another colonial export that, that can be left to, be his, to the history books. So one of the things that I kind of want to explore was how these, how, these, how these memories came to be forgotten. And essentially looking at like museums, literature, and other different, different aspects to show that memory is something that's not, not just determined by the state. It's determined by all these different cultural representations. So the, the, key, the key theme of this is that Britain only remembers China for its opium but it's forgotten its involvement in, that op in the opium narrative. So one of the nice quotes that I've kind of discovered was Oscar Wilde in The Prince of Dorian Gray saying, the opium dens are dens of horror where the, where the memory of old sins can be erased. This is essentially what's happened with Britain, that we enter the opium den, both literally and figuratively, and we've forgotten our, our involvement in this narrative, whereas China has not forgotten. It has gone to the point that there's such thing that Julie Lavelle terms as the opium war button, and that anything Britain does that's deemed by China to be like non their interest or deemed as imperialist, they, China can immediately turn around and say, you did this to us 150 years ago. So what we are not going to do anything that's going to seem that, be seen as us bowing down to your interests. And yet Britain leaning back, leaning back and just kind of going like, we don't understand why this is something so important to you. And this, will, and this essentially kind of shows how, again, if memory, if, if it's not taught in school textbooks, where exactly does it exist? Again, museums and literature. 
and that's essentially the, one of the core the core themes of like my work is is centralizing around that on how on how these memories come to be remembered and forgotten, and how this disparity shapes how Britain and China have perceived each other back then and how they perceive each other now. So you've sort of already mentioned why this topic is important to study today, but what do you think Western governments could learn from studying this topic? I think they could ultimately learn how central Asia has been in, de in developing British economic and, and political interests. Because essentially, even since then, and still today, Asia kind of exists on the periphery of, of British like knowledge and memory. It's not something that is often like discussed or interactions with it. Very rarely are, are people aware of like how Singapore was with one of Britain's like former colonies until it's lost to the Japanese in World War Two, and it even it, it's even less well known of the Opium Wars. Anytime I've discussed this with some like, with some people that, that that I've met in like different different socials, they often say I don't really know a lot about that. Because A, it's not taught, and B, it's not really commemorated or memorialized in different monuments. You're not going to walk down the street and see there's a monument to, to, to Lord Elgin or like or Lord Napier because they just don't exist. These men, they, these men were not chosen to be memorialized due to the due to the exploits that, that happened in like in the nineteenth century. So what Western governments could ultimately learn that China was always involved in Britain and Britain was always involved with China. It's never a case we suddenly decided to turn away from it. It's only it's only really something that was deliberately, cho deliberately chosen in, like in the mid twentieth century, and as we're now entering an age, as Theresa May has called it, the golden age of Chinese and British relations, you come to you've come to realize there's still a fundamental lack of understanding between these two countries. Britain does not understand how set, how how long China's memory goes back, nor does, and China doesn't really understand how Britain, essentially. It doesn't really see, see these events as being central to its own national narrative. So if you were to sit down, sit like future prime ministers down and make them learn the, these topics, you, it would quickly come to realize that Britain has always been involved. To say they haven't, they haven't been is something that would be very ignorant of like its own, of its own national culture, and it would be further detrimental to like engaging with with Chinese diplomats. What impact has? Have these events had on long-term international relations? I think one of the main impacts has had is not is mainly the a lack of lack of understanding between these two countries. This was more kind of seen with issues related to David Cameron's and in his visit to China and interactions with China during this period. I think one one of the most central ones was the issue of Akhnashek, where this was a British man who was take, who was taken in for for drug possession in China and was then similarly. Sim and was then executed for for this. During this period, Britain sent over 20, 27 like official visits to try and stop this from happening. They they essentially trying to argue, pleading for clemency and saying China cannot execute this man. China would then turn around and say, well, no, the, the issue of drug possession being carried by foreigners is one that has had a long, painful history in our country. And so therefore, in order to keep up this historical precedent of having a, taking a very strong anti-drug stance, we're we're going we are going to like issue punishment, and to which Britain eventually just lost the case. There's no way they could go they could go against that. Another central issue is that the issue of the poppy, around about November 2011, when David Cameron and his and his cabinet visited China, they wore the poppy. 
obviously for us, it's a symbol of national remembrance. For China, that's a symbol of opium, a symbol of national humiliation. And even though David Cameron was reportedly told by Chinese authorities to not wear the poppy, he refused to do so and wore it anyway. Although it may not seem like a, a big deal to us, to China, we essentially lost a bit of our soft power standing like in, in, in the eyes of, of the foreign audience because we essentially more had, again, displayed ignorance of China's national history and, again, forced our own meaning of the poppy on these, on these, on the China to say, no, this is our interpretation. We're, we're, going, we're going to wear the poppy. That, we're not going to take it off. So, again, I think lack of understanding has mainly been the, the detrimental long-term effect. And until it is more widely known, we're going to either have more, in, more just minor incidents of, just, of fun, fundamental lack of understandings. And I think that will further harm British and Chinese relations. Because it, when we're at the point that we're not entirely sure, due, due to Brexit, of where we can turn to, and we're at the stage which China is further rising on the world stage, it would be in our best interest to be more aware of like this national history between these two countries in order to prevent such minor instances from happening again. Well, thank you for that really informative, really interesting interview, Bria. You've covered so many topics about things that I certainly knew nothing about. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> Hello, it's Wilf here from the online team. I hope you liked listening to this episode and have enjoyed the series so far. If you're interested in getting involved in the Manchester Historian, applications are now open to join us for the next academic year. Whether you have experience in journalism already or not, you can now apply to be part of our copy editing, online, design or marketing teams for next year. Applications must be submitted to our email, manchesterhistorian at gmail.com, by the 24th of May. So head over to our Facebook page to read about the positions available and fill in the application form. We'll also be starting a crowdfunding campaign to help with the magazine. So keep an eye out on social media for more information on that and also for our upcoming issue, Politics, Corruption and Greed.